This is the story of an auteur who is maybe not fully appreciated in his own time or in any time. Um, and yet there is just something about him that he he has a such an enthusiasm for his work and such a joie de vivre and nothing like he never lets the man get him down that just makes him just so gosh darn likable and you know uh, it's it's a kind of a departure from the director and i think one of his finest films and also one of the lead actor's finest films mm -hmm. as well Kay, have you seen Ed Wood. Yes! I was hoping it was going to be Ed Wood. Uh, I have not seen Ed Wood. I've wanted to see it for a long time, so I'm really excited. Tim Burton, director of Batman, Beetlejuice, and Edward Scissorhands, now takes you to a completely different world. The true story of a Hollywood legend, Ed Wood. And action! He made movies like no one else. You want to keep moving? You've got to get through that door. Ah! Perfect. Perfect. Do you know anything about film production? Well, I'd like to think so. He had an eye for talent. I met Bella Lugosi. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the most uncomfortable coffin I've ever been in. No, he's very much alive. <laughs> you flying saucer? He had a passion for storytelling. Get me transvestites. I need transvestites. You're flashy. They want that. Okay. But they want professionalism. So Nick's on the Nelly without losing naivete. What kind of a movie is this? It's science fiction. A heartbreaking romance. Brave robbers from outer space. Brave robbers from what? And he had a secret he couldn't hide. I like to dress in women's clothing. Panties, sweaters, pumps. It's just something I do. You don't like sex with girls? No, I love sex with girls. Wearing their clothes makes me feel closer to them. How can you act so casual when you're dressed like that? All right, everybody, let's finish this picture. This is the one. I command you! This is the one I'll be remembered for. Ed Wood, a Tim Burton film. Really? Worst film you ever saw. Well, my next one will be better. Hello, welcome back to K Have You Seen? My name is Kyle. I'm Kari. And uh, today we are discussing a movie that you rarely hear people talk about too much, but it has still achieved strange sort of familiarity in the subgenre of movies about making movies. Uh, it's a cult classic these days with a really strong cast. Story's compelling, the characters are compelling, and personally I just think it's a really enjoyable movie to watch. Of course, the movie today is... 1994's Ed Wood, directed by Tim Burton and starring Johnny Depp at the head of a really, like I said, a very strong cast. Kari, would you be so kind as to give us a brief rundown of what this movie is about? Sure. Um, so basically, a young ingenue played by Johnny Depp. Can you use ingenue for men as well? In this case, I think it's appropriate. I think it's fine. Um, and then, yes, yeah, there's some gender bending here, but... Uh, a young ingenue is trying to break into Hollywood as a writer, director, producer, and basically just brings all his friends along with him, a ragtag band of misfits, just trying to get some movies made. That's the gist. That's more or less it. And uh, But it's, it's interesting because this film has several layers playing simultaneously. That, I believe, is probably the core of the entire story. Mm -hmm. um, but there are relevant details at play as well that we will get into uh, for sure as we get th uh, further in. Uh, the official synopsis, or at least, uh, let's see here, from the good old Rotten Tomatoes, uh, Ed Wood was a little-known filmmaker from the early 50s who gained posthumous notoriety for his dreadful B-grade science fiction films 
discovered in the mid-80s. Discovered, more or less, by mm. film fans. This film is Tim Burton's fictionalized portrait of Wood's strange yet mediocre life and career. Um, it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a story about an odd character, but a very likable character, I would say. Mm -hmm. Like, the character of Ed is, a, in this film at least, regardless of what the real life person was like, is super likable. He's got like an infectious kind of likability. Yeah, he's very earnest. It's hard yes. to, he, there's nothing malicious or cynical about him. He's just... He just wants to make some movies, gosh darn it. Absolutely. And he does have that kind of like, aw shucks, Jimmy Stewart kind of charm mm -hmm. to him, which is odd. Again, he's, it's, it's very much like a... He's, he's really just a misfit in a lot of ways and not particularly good at what he loves doing, but he doesn't let that stop him, yes. which I find kind of inspiring. Um, now, before we go too much further, I, I'm curious as to what your impression is uh, or was watching this movie for the first time. I'd like to take a stab at it myself. Sure. I feel like you enjoyed this film very much. I mm. am, I suspect, partly because of the story that it is telling, or the stories that it's telling mm -hmm. in particular. But mm. please, do tell me, what was your first impression of this film? I did enjoy it. I, I, my background with this film, I had heard of it, I knew of it as part of the Tim Burton, Johnny Depp canon, um, but had never seen it, obviously. I did. I thought it was sweet. It was fun to watch. It's very, you know, once you get into the meat of the story, it really is about friendship. And we'll get into that later. But it, it's it's hard not to like just the the dynamic of this just super sweet and naive guy who he just has one thing he wants to do. And he's he's just trying to do it with all of his good friends. He wants, you know, he, he recognizes the talent or something in his friends and wants to bring them with him and you know he may not be a super talented or effective director but that's just all he wants to do so it is it's a sweet story I think it's really effectively told and you do feel a lot of sympathy for all the characters and you you root for them to get the different successes they're after but um yeah I, I enjoyed it I enjoyed Good. it okay um I mean I don't remember the first time I saw this movie I've only seen it a handful of times before this past week um but it was just a movie that I heard about in passing. Uh, I, I think I brought this up in previous episodes. It was at a period in my life when I was probably late high school, early college, when I was mm -hmm. just trying to devour as many known movies as I could find. And mm -hmm. I was always intrigued by stories about filmmakers in sure. particular. So I was drawn to this one. I have been a fan of Tim Burton's in particular for a long time. Um, and so I, this seemed like a slam dunk for me mm -hmm. and I loved it the first time I saw it. Um, I thought it was just super interesting and enjoyable and such an interesting departure for Tim Burton in particular. Um, and it, it was like Tim Burton turning off the Tim Burton and being more of a traditional director, but still really bringing a lot of flavor into this story. So right. I, I always appreciated that in particular. Yeah. And we'll talk, I'm sure, about where Tim Burton, where you can really feel his presence in this movie. But um, I wanted to ask you what your familiarity was with Ed Wood outside of this movie. Did you know who he was before this? No. Have you sought out his films since? I have not actually seen any of okay. the of Edward D. Wood Jr.'s filmography. <laughs> I have not. Um, I, know, I knew about him... From this movie alone, I think mm -hmm. when I first saw it, I knew that this was based on a true story and that Ed Wood was a real person. But before or since, I have not seen a single one. Um, all I know is that they are widely regarded as some of the worst 
most insufferable films you will ever see. Um, Yeah, they don't devote a lot of time in this movie to what the movies actually are. But you do get kind of a sense of of what they're like. And it, it made me interested to seek them out even though they sound morbidly curious perhaps yeah Yeah. because basically what you what you pick up is it's a a couple of scenes because even i made a note of like when you see his script it is tiny it's so short it's like 15 pages and they're shooting it in like four days some of these movies and then it's just cut together with stock footage so i'm so curious what they're actually like yeah um yeah. Now, Ed Wood was famous for making terrible movies, but this movie uh, is good, and uh, critics, even at the time, definitely agree with that assessment. Uh, currently, it's sitting at 92% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, wow. so critics really like it. I think critics, unfortunately, were the biggest fans of it, because this was not a financial hit. Uh, yeah. um, the budget was $18 million. What would you guess mm. the gross collectively for theatrical release was for this movie. Oh, no. Um, Did it make its budget back at least? That'd be cheating if I told you Uh, that. But I will um, say no. Yeah. I'm going to guess 12 million. Mm. Mmm. Try again. 5 million. $5 million. $5 million. This movie grossed 5 million against an $18 million budget. Barely 20% of its budget. So, uh, I... mm. I have a lot of questions. I didn't do a lot of background research because I mostly wanted you to give me the salient points, but I, I am curious that. where in where in Tim Burton's canon this is. Like, what, oh. what had just come out before and well, after? Well, let me tell you, this was right after... Now, Tim Burton did not direct Nightmare Before Christmas, but he, you know, he was like the art right. it inspiration was, for it, yeah. So, and he produced it. That came right before this. That was 1993. Oh, wow. Um, before that, you had... This was hot off of... Um, two Batman movies, Edward Scissorhands, and a little bit earlier, Beetlejuice. Wow. This was Tim Burton really, I think, this at the height peak, of his yeah. career. And he couldn't make back his $18 million budget. I think it was too niche. I think that this uh, movie is just like, it was too, uh, you know, not flashy enough to attract a big audience. Right. And, you know, just kind of niche. It's, it's, it's very much art house territory, but handled with a broad mm. uh, appeal. But yeah. you have to actually see the movie to get that, unfortunately. Although, I mean, it does actually make a lot of sense. We will probably talk about this later, but this seems like a movie that you make after you have had hit after hit and you say like, okay, this is the movie I've been wanting mm-hmm. to make and now people will actually let me have the budget to do it. Like, well, no one's going to see this movie, but I want to make it anyway. You know, ironically, uh, he wasn't even supposed to direct this movie. He was pr- he was set to produce it. He liked yeah. the script and he was going to produce it. Mm-hmm. But the original director uh, had to back out because he had another, uh, he had a commitment to another film that wasn't oh. finished in time. So Tim Burton kind of got thrust into the director's chair. Really? Because uh-huh. this one felt to me like a director's love letter to another director. Definitely. And I think that's probably what attracted him as a producer in the first place. So uh-huh. getting, to, getting to direct it probably was more just like serendipitous and just good for Tim Burton in particular, more so than by design. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. And yeah, I will talk more about this later, I'm <laughs> sure. Because I this the Tim Burton's interest in this story, I thought was a really interesting kind of subtext. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, before we get too much farther, um, just for context about other movies that if you... If you liked these other movies, or if you like this movie, what movies to maybe pair them with, have your own little double feature. I was wondering if you had any that came to mind. Mm. I mean, yeah, you got to kind of deviate from the Tim Burton canon. 
I need to think. I haven't seen a ton of movies that are about Hollywood by Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Now, you say, you know, trying to steer away from the Tim Burton canon. Quite honestly, this movie is kind of unlike almost anything that Tim Burton has done before or since. So that's something to keep keep in mind as well. Yeah, that is so true. Did you have any obvious ones? Um, I know this is kind of a genre that means a lot to you. To me personally, yeah. Uh, Honestly, like, (laughs) The Disaster Artist. Oh, that, I haven't seen that one yet. Okay. Is, that, is that good? It's The movie is good. It's not as good as I was wanting it to be, but it is good. And it's a, it's uncanny how similar it is about mm-hmm. this guy who makes terrible movies but just loves making movies oh, okay. and about his relationships, except whereas Ed Wood is kind of about how he forms strong relationships, Disaster Artist is about a guy who's in a very similar position, but he forms very tenuous relationships mm. where he, like, he kind of strains his own credibility with the people that are close to him in a lot of ways. So it's kind of like two sides of the same coin, but it shows kind of how these figures emerge every once in a while in Hollywood and just kind of, they become notorious Mm -hmm. for making terrible movies. And yet there's just something about them that is magnetic to people. Yeah. That is the interesting thing about like when something is so bad that it gains its own fame just Mm -hmm. for how terrible it is. And I think that's something, yeah, this, this, the movie Ed Wood is potentially interested in it's not the main, sure. main point but it's it's more it's definitely more interested in the person than in the product which mm-hmm. I, I which is what makes it so in which makes the film so good um a couple of other obvious ones that i thought might go well with it is if you wanted to watch one of the actual ed woods movies like plan yeah. nine from outer space or glenn or glenda which you can still find i mean they're still available um and then also this is kind of wild card but fits in with the rest of the film is if you wanted to watch citizen kane with this because that really? seems to be the film that oh, yes. ed is yeah, yeah. ed is so he's got this massive hero worship for Orson Welles, specifically for Citizen Kane. He talks about him very early on, mm-hmm. kind of uses Welles as his own yardstick for success in a way that may not necessarily be healthy, but it doesn't seem to dwell on it. He's just kind of mm-hmm. dismayed that Orson Welles had this massive success as a young man that he's, you know, Ed feels like he's getting older and hasn't even come close. So mm-hmm. um, to see Citizen Kane next to this one is an odd pairing, but still, you know, they're both stories about... Uh, uh, a man with a dream. Yeah, true. One that actually did pop in my head um, was one I watched in college, uh, The Bad and the Beautiful. Not similar tonally mm. at all, but if you're into this like kind of old Hollywood feel and you know the the mechanics behind getting made a movie made, mm-hmm. this was obviously very different because sure. The Bad and the Beautiful is kind of the high end of studio culture, and this right. is you know, indie guerrilla filmmaking, but... The back alleys of the studio culture, if you will. Yeah, but I think it would pair well together just to see both ends of that spectrum in a kind of similar time period. Also because The Bad and the Beautiful, I think, was like, what, 1950? And so it's kind of like a movie that was made during the time period that Ed Wood was set, more or less. Yeah, 1952 was Bad and Beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Same same kind of era, just totally different ends of the spectrum in terms of getting movies made. Absolutely. And uh, now, as we get into this discussion, um, you know, we kind of have to frame this discussion in a way uh, of looking at, I think, three kind of parallel stories that are happening layered upon one another that are happening simultaneously. Um, And those being the story of a man with a secret, Mm -hmm. the story of a friendship, and the story of an artist. Yeah. um, Which we can get into in more detail as we move forward. But the people that are kind of bringing this story to life, I think at the forefront, you have to look at director Tim Burton and lead actor Johnny Depp, who mm-hmm. both superstars today, sure. even at the time, I think they had both become kind of household names. Oh, yeah. 
Um, and I would say both of them were kind of at the peak of their own careers, mm -hmm. more or less, or at the height of their powers, I would say, perhaps. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Johnny Depp, both of them have had immense lasting power, but I think you're right that this is, this is kind of when they could have done anything. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Johnny Depp's performance in this movie, I think, is great. Mm -hmm. This was at the time when he was still kind of likable, mm -hmm. as opposed to, he, you know, quirky and likable, as opposed to just, like, weird and just unpleasant. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I think he's gone into more of a, like, his characters have been, well, I don't know, he's still, he has a pretty broad range. I, I do feel like we should kind of, you mentioned it a little bit, but, like, it's hard to understand Johnny Depp now knowing some of the things you know about him personally. So, yeah, you know, I, that's not something I think we're going to grapple with too much. I, I don't think but... so, only because, I mean, in the, a lot of things have happened in the intervening 25 years since they made this movie. I mean, mm -hmm. I have to assume, like most people, he was a, that was half a lifetime ago for him. Yeah. I mean, he was like 27 to 28 years old at the time, I think. Yeah. I think something like that. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's like he was a, he was a different person. And so it's like long enough ago that I feel like you really just have, kind of have to look at his at the performance and separate it from the man, right? Yeah, and more than anything, just like it's that's a whole another hour's worth of discussion, I think. But just of course acknowledge that he there are some unsavory things about him that you you really can't separate. But looking at his performance alone and not his personal life, it yeah I think now he's gone more into that. Uh, the kind of Johnny Depp of Pirates of the Caribbean, where yes. it's very kind of dark, sexy, brooding type, you know, that, that, I don't know, whatever, that genre. But back then he had that range of, you know, he was in the um, Edward Scissorhands where mm -hmm. he was just this very out there, bizarre, quiet mm -hmm. character. Um, and yeah, he does a really good job at making this guy, like we said, super likable and yeah. very specific and you know i don't know it's there's a lot to dig into oh yeah them. i mean he he brings a lot of theatricality to this um this role mm -hmm. and what i wrote one thing i wrote in my notes is that um the movie is it, it is it's not the movie itself is not kitschy it's not camp it's it's very i i feel like it has a very true to life feel mm. it seems like it's going for realism in terms of the way it portrays these people however they make a very interesting i think choice to make the character of ed wood very sort of like theatrical and a little bit campy and mm -hmm. a little bit like exaggerated which i don't know if that's the way the real ed wood was like but if he right. was it would kind of it would be almost too perfect for this story mm -hmm. um and not only that uh, I don't know if you happen to look up any photos of the actual Ed Wood. A uh, couple, yeah. Johnny Depp actually was a pretty close approximation. Like, they were uh, fairly similar in appearance, I thought, in this film. Um, not dead ringers. Like, you mm -hmm. never mistake one for the other, but close. I could, yeah, I could see that. They definitely, yeah, yeah. I, I think the he has a pretty specific look, like the mustache yeah. and something about the eyebrows and the hair. But he really does, like, Johnny Depp comes into that look quite well. And it was quite, I will say this, it was quite a look in this movie. Like, honestly, yes. like, it was, I, I, I'm a big fan of, like, the 1950s aesthetic mm -hmm. and, you know, fashion and style and things like that. And, man, Johnny Depp looked good in this movie. He looked pretty great. He was, he was rocking it. Um, shoot. Oh, you said before that um, 
they chose to make Ed Wood pretty like campy and theatrical. But honestly, I think every character in this movie was pretty like it. The movie itself may not have been campy, but all of the characters, it was interested mm-hmm. in portraying camp. It, There's yes. a degree of separation, I think, between the film and actual campiness. But like everything within it mm-hmm. is pretty campy, especially sure. as far as like the people go. Like if, even Sarah Jessica Parker as his as Edward's girlfriend in mm-hmm. the kind of first half of the movie. Half the time you're kind of like, what? Like I I was kind of her her way of speaking and just being was very like, oh okay. Like, yeah oh. yeah like, that's that is true that is true. But yeah. then she had those really grounded moments of just being like, what like. The couple times that they got in a fight in the movie, mm-hmm. she totally fell out of that register in a way that maybe was a little confusing, but... I thought that that was an interesting touch only because... Because I noticed that as well, but like whenever there was like a fight or something like that, and if things mm-hmm. got actually serious, it, it kind of it, it broke the illusion a little bit, and it was like, oh no, this is kind of serious, actually. Yeah. Um, which I thought was good for... I, I don't know that it was... I don't know how beneficial it was, but I thought it worked. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it was, I wasn't totally sure what we were supposed to get out of it, especially with Sarah Jessica Parker's character. I was mm-hmm. just a little confused what she was supposed to be, but mm-hmm. I did feel like it was pretty true to life. Like, you know, there's kind of that, oh, okay, we're just rolling with this. Sure, and then yeah. there's the like, no, this is too much. I'm, I'm drawing the line right here. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That's true. But even like Bella Lugosi sitting and watching um, Dracula in a full tuxedo, uh-huh. like, that was adorable and campy and hilarious. So apparently, now granted, a lot of this is based, like the script is largely based on first-hand accounts of people who knew Ed uh-huh. and by Ed. Uh-huh. Um, he, in real life, was friends with Bela Lugosi at That's the end amazing. of Lugosi's life. And apparently, Lugosi was just like that. He would <laughs> dress in his full Dracula regalia and like watch his own movies on TV it. and things like that. Like, that was just a thing that he did. Which is a perfect segue to talk about Martin Landau in mm-hmm. his Oscar-winning performance as wow. Bela Lugosi in this film. I didn't film. realize that. I didn't know this was not was an Oscar contender at all, but that's yeah, amazing. Best Supporting Actor uh, in the 95 Oscars. Um, he did great. Yeah, he's great. Um, and he... Uh, it, it's flawless. Like, if you've ever seen... If you have ever seen, like, photos or footage, even, for that matter, of Lugosi mm-hmm. at this stage, at the end of his life, it's like, you know, uh, Johnny Depp's not a dead ringer for Ed Wood, but Landau was definitely, like, a dead ringer for old Lugosi. Yeah. Yeah, I did see that one. And it is, it's impressive. Mm-hmm. He did uh, the accent flawlessly, too. Absolutely. I yeah, I thought that. Uh, uh, yeah, it, yeah, he sounded <laughs> exactly the same. I shall perfect my own race of people. A race of atomic supermen that will conquer the world. <laughs> yeah, the the whole deal with uh, Martin Landau as uh, Bela Lugosi and the way he he portrays him is basically like this like obsolete, broken down, out of work junkie. Mm-hmm. Was I mean, it's it's kind of heartbreaking in a few places. This person who. Basically, you know, Ed talks about in the film, he's like, you know how much money he made for the studio 20 years ago? Yeah. It's, it's crazy. And, and, and that's true. Like, Universal was built on a foundation of Dracula and Frankenstein coming out back to back. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it was like, that's, a you know, this multi-billion dollar enterprise owes so much to this guy who ended up dying in poverty, um, living off of yeah. unemployment, you know? Right. Addicted to morphine 
kind of friendless. It was, yeah, mm-hmm. it was pretty tragic. I did think the um, the Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi uh, <laughs> yeah. competition that keeps getting worked in was pretty funny. Also very, but, sorry, no, I didn't mean to cut you off, no, but like that, that's very true to life as well, which by the oh, way, if you're, if you're listening and interested in that, there is a great podcast also called You Must Remember This that deals uh, with like Hollywood, which deals with Hollywood history. Mm-hmm. And they did a mini series just this past Halloween called Bella and Boris, which is about oh. the development of both of their careers sort of side by side and like pretty much their entire life stories. Fascinating stuff. Oh, I bet. I love that podcast, but that would be a good one. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else about Landau before we move on to just a little bit about the rest of the cast here? Uh, just a fun fact, but, uh, Please. Juliet Lando, mm-hmm. his daughter, yeah. plays, um, shoot, I'm going to totally forget, the actress who almost funds the movie, but yes. turns out she doesn't have any money. Yeah. Um, Loretta King. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Martin Landau's daughter was also in this movie, which I just thought was kind of sweet. Yeah, for sure. And I... <laughs> She was she was great. I mean, her her, her brief good. performance was like otherworldly and weird and, and kind of funny. I thought. Yeah, and she looked so familiar to me. But I think the only other major thing they had for her was um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I yeah. didn't watch a ton of. But maybe that's maybe that's how I saw her. But she was Perhaps. she was fantastic. Yeah. Um, moving on down the list a little bit, um, the actress Lisa Marie, who when I saw her name in the opening credits was like, is that Lisa Marie Presley? It's not, different person. Oh. Um, who, she played Vampira. Oh, um, yes. Uh, Tim Burton was actually dating her at the time. No way. This is who he was dating before he met, um, uh, Helen Bonham Carter. And, oh, uh, interesting. Yeah. Who, that's a funny story, or not funny, but kind of like, ooh, gossipy huh. story in itself if you care to look into that. Yes, but, go on. Anyway, um... But no, I thought she was great as Vampira. Like, that was one of those kind of, like, side characters I thought was really, um, really added just that perfect kind of flavor to this this story. Yeah. Um, and how Ed was kind of, like, stalking her, but in, like, a very professional sort of way. Yeah. I wanted to look into, like, how much of that was true. Did he call her and ask her out one time? Like, there's a lot of kind of throwaway details yeah. that it's like, maybe it happened, maybe it didn't, but... He, like, meets her in a restaurant, and he's like, please be in my movie, and he's, like, yeah. begging her on his knees, and then calls her at one point and is just like, hey, I forget what he asks her to do, but he basically asks her out, and she's like, no, like, come on. <laughs> she was but, hilarious, yeah. Yeah, she was great, and then, what did, in real life, what did she get fired for from the studio? I have no idea. Oh, okay. Um, I think it was just a matter of just, I don't think it was anything in particular, it was just, like, the studio moving on, but, Oh, okay. You know, Vampire was kind of the originator of what became a, a trend across the United States over, like, several decades of local TV stations having, like, their own, like, you know, monster movie, creature feature, mm. late night movie hosted by, like, a character. Uh-huh. So, like, the most famous being Elvira, of right. course, who basically took the Vampira formula and infused it with, like, an 80s Valley Girl persona, which is ingenious, I think. <laughs> like, Elvira is, like, one of my favorite, like characters from the 80s yeah just because it's such a it's such an odd combination of things that just works yeah it absolutely does and not being super familiar with that i was like wait is this a spin on elvira or is this and then i looked it up and i was like mm-hmm. oh okay so vampire elvira are totally different people mm-hmm. but definitely the very similar sticks fun fact elvira was sued I by vampira <laughs> for ripping off her act yeah um but at any rate um, and then also you got uh, Bill Murray in this cast uh, in kind yeah. of like a role that doesn't really add any specific thing to the story, but he kind of pops up occasionally and mm-hmm. it, always interesting. Like, I, th- yeah. I feel like this was kind of the beginning of Bill Murray starting to take roles that weren't just like, you know, Caddyshack uh-huh. or, or even uh, 
Groundhog Day, for that matter. Yeah. And uh, but he's 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 good in it. Like what he has to do, he's he's quite good. I thought. Yeah, he was. I didn't um know who is it? Bunny. Bunny Breckenridge. Bunny is the Breckenridge. Name. Yeah, I didn't know him from anything, but his character, Bill Murray, mm-hmm. in general, was fantastic, and his character was interesting even without context. Sure. He was a kind of. Oh, I feel like if this movie is kind of tracking Ed Wood's kind of dive into finding his tribe more or less mm-hmm. like finding that band of weirdos that actually are his people mm-hmm. um bill murray seemed like he was kind of that first entree into that life like he's yeah. a holdover from kind of the beginning when when edward goes from kind of a a closeted cross-dresser into mm-hmm. a full-fledged like he's gonna be on set he like in his women's clothing he's gonna be just true to who he is and the terrible movies he wants to make. Mm-hmm. And for those who have not seen the movie, you might be asking yourself, did she just say crossdresser? Yes, that is the part that uh, I feel yes. like actually gets kind of left out of a lot of descriptions of this movie for some reason. Like, yeah, I it, suppose we should dive into that. Yeah, and that moves us perfectly into uh, the first thread that I mentioned earlier when I said there's kind of three parallel strings in this in this film that you can look at. Uh, the story of a man with a secret. Ed's secret is that he is uh, a crossdresser. He's, mm-hmm. not, he's not gay. Mm-hmm. He's not transgender. He is, by by all accounts of even people that knew him at the time, including people who were gay and he would have had been comfortable. Ed was not gay. He was totally straight, exclusively interested in women. Mm-hmm. He was just comfortable dressing in women's clothing for yeah. whatever reason. And this film kind of puts that more or less front and center, I would say. Like, that is one of the key focuses of him as a person and a character. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, it's not really delved into in a lot of the more brief summaries of this movie that you see, which yeah. I think is kind of odd. I still think it's like, you know, if you read it on the back of a box, some of these summaries that don't mention it at all, and you start watching the movie, you'd be like, whoa, that uh, seems like an important thing to <laughs> to bring up. Yeah. Um, but at any rate, I, I was curious as your impressions of, like, the way this movie kind of portrayed that aspect of his life. Well, that's what I was going to say. It is it is important to who he is, but it's really not that important to the overall story. Like, there, I having seen trailers for this movie before, I think I watched a trailer for this before I watched the movie when we first talked about it, and even then it seems like from the trailer that it's going to be this big thing, but you kind of find out about it very early in the movie. Mm-hmm. He kind of tries to use it as a way to get his first film, which he does end up getting but it's more because he has the that he has Bella Lugosi than because he's a crossdresser and he's yeah it's it's important to who he is but overall like it it doesn't matter too much it's just a thing about him I agree although I would say that the fact that he is a crossdresser is not what's important to the story it's the fact that he has this secret that he has to be very tactical about who he reveals it to and how because he doesn't know how because you know he's living in 1951 right so not exactly a time period in history that was known for being accepting of people who did not conform to standards of normality um and so it's not so much what the secret is that's important to his story but i think it is important to acknowledge that the fact that he has a secret that he has to figure out how to navigate society with is a key aspect of his characterization and of the story. Yeah, I, that's very true. The the coming out scenes I think are way more important than the 
the cross-dressing scene, mm -hmm. so I can totally get yeah. that. I know what it's like to live with a secret and worry about what people are going to think of you. My girlfriend still doesn't know why her sweaters are always stretched out. And it does impact his relationships with some people more than with others. Like, mm -hmm. you know, from the very beginning of the movie, he has this kind of crew of people that he associates with that are... None of them seem to have... What's the word I'm looking for? None of them seem to not know that this is his life. Right. Or if that's the case, when they find out, they don't care. Mm -hmm. So it's like... When he does have to reveal it to certain people, because, like, there's really three main parts where he, like, reveals it to somebody where it's important. Mm -hmm. The first time is with the producer that he's trying to get to give him the, um, the fir his first movie project. Right. And he tells him this story about how, which is kind of hilarious. I thought the way he delivers the story about, like, you know, he, he's like, confidentially, I paratrooped into combat wearing women's underwear and a bra. You're not a fruit. No, I'm all man. I even fought in WW2. Of course, I was wearing women's undergarments under my uniform. You gotta be kidding me. Confidentially, I even paratrooped wearing a brassiere and panties. I'll tell you, I wasn't scared of being killed, but I was terrified of getting wounded and having the medics discover my secret. That was, that was really well told. Yeah, and the guy's reaction to this whole thing, he's kind of like, not sure how to react, and then finally he's like, all right, whatever, I don't care. Yeah. He's like, well, listen, like, that's not, I just need to get a movie that will make money. I don't care about, like, your personal... Your personal projects, right. your passions. I just need to, like, get tickets sold. Yeah. Uh, the second time is when he reveals it to Sarah Jessica Parker, who mm -hmm. is his girlfriend at the beginning of the movie. And she's, like, she seems at first more upset that he kept a secret from her. Which, again, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about. Like, it's not as much what the secret is. It's the fact that he's keeping a secret from people that are close to him. Um Eventually, though, it's like she can't handle the weirdness, which mm -hmm. this is kind of where the movie depart from what I my research. The movie departs from real life is that the real uh, Dolores whatever mm -hmm. had issue with the fact that they portrayed her this way because she was like, that wasn't the case at all. Like I we broke up for different reasons. Like that wasn't oh. why we broke up at all. Mm -hmm. And she was upset that the movie kind of made it out that she threw a tantrum and stormed off because she couldn't handle how weird it was. Right. But. Regardless, in this in the context of this movie, it's a little bit different. Um, and then the third time is when he's dating Patricia Arquette. Mm -hmm. Kathy, I believe, is her name in the movie. Yes. Um, and she's surprisingly okay with it for, again, given the time period, a shocking level of, like, progressive attitude yeah. about it. Which is, it almost seemed, like, too okay with it to be believable. But, you know what? Right. Whatever. Because she's made out to be this, like, very sweet kind of naive-ish I guess but she is like the the movie plays her as like this is kind of his perfect match and yeah. I want to talk about that a little bit more too please but, let's go for it um I would add first before I move on from this there is one more scene I think that's important about coming out actually possibly too but um the moment when he goes or when uh the the Los Angeles Baptists or whatever are funding his movie <sighs> yes. and he's like just fed up with their creative input and then he like freaks out puts on women's clothing and comes back out and he's like all right now we're gonna finish like yes. it's his like kind of stress relief it's his way to be comfortable in the position that he's in and I think that was kind of a a major one too because he was yeah. like you know what this is who I am and I don't care who's financially backing this movie we're gonna do what I want to do I agree and I completely forgot about that so I'm glad you uh brought that up um what was your other the other one that I would add to this list. Yeah. Um, 
I think it's not necessarily coming out, but I do think it's important that when he actually meets Orson Welles, which is kind of yes. a... Uh, it's I don't think the movie's like necessarily like I didn't predict that this was gonna happen but it, it is super important because Orson Welles is obviously like a huge hero of his and he ends up meeting him in a mm-hmm. bar it's in women's clothing right so I think that's pretty huge I yeah it is although that is the one one of the time or that's really the the time that the movie pays attention to where he's not revealing his secret to somebody. This is just who he is yeah. when he meets his hero. True. And it's at the point where he has that moment where he looks in the mirror and he's like, I look like a freak. You can tell that's what he's thinking. Mm. And he's like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do it anyway. I don't yeah. care. Takes off the wig and goes and talks to it's great. his hero. It's great. And Orson Welles is totally unfazed by it, which I thought was yeah. hilarious. Um, Orson Welles is an interesting cat on his own, which... That I, I could talk forever, forever about that, um, but then um, and then you know, kind of segueing into our next subject here about this movie being the uh, story of a particular friendship. Bela Lugosi, when he enter, you know, it never seems like he is particularly phased by Ed's cross dressing either. Mm-hmm. Although you never really get a particular moment where that's brought up between the two of them. Right, we never have. The cross-dressing scenes and the Bella Lugosi scenes are pretty well separated. Yeah. Like, those those two kind of stories don't ever mix. There's that one part at, like, the rap party mm-hmm. where Ed's doing oh. his, like, weird dance. Like, it's that like had a lot of things going of thing. on. Yeah. yeah, his, like, burlesque snake dance thing in drag. And Bella seems, again, totally unfazed by it. He's True. just like, it's like, I've been around the block a few times. This does not freak me out. Yeah, and that scene, I think that was a good way to kind of acknowledge that amongst uh edward's like people his friends the that his secret was out he was not shy about who he was because it was like it was everyone all together it was this big performance where he's dancing and drag and you know a kind of burlesque belly dance type thing Mm -hmm. so yeah i think that's exactly what that scene served to do was like yeah maybe we don't have a scene where every important character here confronts um, Ed's secret in his kind of private life, but mm-hmm. they all got it. They all knew. They were cool with it. Sure. They were comfortable, and he was comfortable with it. If we were going to lobby any kind of criticism against this film, it might be that it paints a, an unrealistically rosy portrait of what life might have been like for a person like Ed mm-hmm. in society in the 1950s. Very fair. However, I do think also that the film deserves a little bit of credit for, you know, 1994 was not exactly the pinnacle of, you know, progressivism in terms of like people who were still again not conforming to standards of normality mm-hmm. um and i also think like the the um what am i trying to say the like the danger with stories like this we tend to want to paint them in this like kind of tragic light mm-hmm. but you know he's in hollywood he's he's collected these people around him who understand him and who have their own kind of you know what mm-hmm. people might have considered alternative lights lifestyles or whatever so at the, I, at the time, that's exactly what they would have called it, but go right. on. Right, but I think, you know, I, I credit it for not making it too much of a, like, oh, wow, like, what a hard life he had, because he, yeah. he did, you the, know. The temptation, like, today in mm-hmm. 2018 is if you're making a movie like this, would be probably to make Ed out to be more, like, of a heroic, trailblazing person, 
And, or a tragic but, victim of yeah, the time which or something. this movie doesn't do that. It also doesn't paint him as a freak. It's like, this is just who he is and what he's like. It, right. it's, it's very matter-of-fact about it. And I, personally, I appreciate that. Agreed. Um, but yeah, moving on to the story of a friendship here. The second of the uh, of the three ways to kind of like look at this film. Um, Ed Wood in real life had a very close friendship with Bela Lugosi mm. at, at the end of Lugosi's life. Um, I don't know how much you happen to know about Bela Lugosi. Not a ton. Okay, so obviously his most famous role is Dracula. Mm-hmm. You know, he kind of kickstarted Universal Horror um, with that in a big way. Um, and that was a role, obviously, he was tied to for the rest of his life, but he made a lot of very bad business decisions. And so mm-hmm. he was kind of relegated to playing Dracula in stage versions. Ed references that at one point. Right. Um, which is actually how we got the part in the movie to begin with, is he made a huge Broadway debut in the oh. 20s as Dracula, and that became the film. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hamilton of its day, if you will. Ah. Um, but anyhow, you know, no, he, uh, an interesting character, I mean, he, he came to the United States from Austria-Hungary. He fought in World War One. For the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which is a country that ceased to exist after he arrived in the United States. So that part in the film where he has that I have no home speech. Home. I have no home. Hunted. Despised. Living like an animal. The jungle is my home. I shall show the world that I can be its master. Is credited as being kind of very true to his own life. Um, And and a a very short monologue that he could really relate to in a lot of ways. And I think that, you know, the real Ed Wood wrote that for the real Lugosi to deliver in a movie. And I think that kind of speaks to how I can't attribute that to coincidence. I really Mm -hmm. think that Ed knew his friend in that way well enough to be able to write something for him that he knew this guy could relate to on a deep personal level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just a small moment that I think just really speaks to like the level of friendship they had. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, not knowing either of their, too much of their backstories. I mm-hmm. obviously was familiar with Bella Lugosi, but not Edward. But I do think the, the specificity of their friendship in this film, mm-hmm. like a lot of that had to have been rooted in real life. Like yeah. it's to, to have been rooted in real life at all. Like it must have been, must have been at least close. Oh sure, um, and it is a kind of a case of like an odd couple sort of pairing with like youthful optimism colliding with elderly cynicism and mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, and I think both of them kind of finding each other at the right moment in yeah. their lives. I think. When he first meets Bella Lugosi, when Ed does, and he's like, oh, like, I can give you a ride. And he's clearly, like, just starstruck. Mm-hmm. That could have gone very differently had they met, you know, 20 years earlier oh, yeah. or whatever. And But I think, you know, Bella was at a point where he just, like, didn't have any friends. And he, anyone remembering his work was worth something to him. And then Edward is kind of trying to make his way up and meeting someone that is a hero to him. Mm-hmm. Especially a hero to him in this industry that he's trying so hard to become a part of is you know it 
it's just a really nice intersection. It worked out yeah. perfectly. And it, it's great. Like there's that one scene where they're on the street and Lugosi gives the monologue that Ed wrote for him. He delivers it on the sidewalk uh-huh. and a small crowd of like tourists that like kind of gathered around to like, see him and like they clap and yeah. the one guy comes up and asks for his autograph and you can see Ed's face light up and it's not yeah. because this is my monologue or anything like that. It's because he's like, I can't believe I'm seeing this genius in action kind mm-hmm. of a thing. I cannot believe that this is my life that this legend is my friend yeah. and I get to work with him and hang out with him and things like that. And I, I love that. Like that's, yeah. that really added a lot of warmth, a lot more warmth than you would expect from, you know, a, a, basically a movie about a guy who's friends with an old junkie, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's definitely like giving Bella his life back and getting Bella the, the appreciation he deserves mm-hmm. or Ed thinks he deserves is a huge motivating factor behind their friendship. And that's, it is, that is a good, like, moment to kind of sum that up it's great and uh, again it would it's it's so hilarious to me some in some scenes to see like two great performances by two really good actors like mm-hmm. you know Johnny Depp's performances Ed we've talked about a little bit but like and 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 uh, uh Martin Landau's Oscar-winning performances Lugosi they're very different mm-hmm. and so seeing them kind of bounce off of each other one-on-one in so many scenes is it's so weird and enjoyable in such a such a peculiar way. I mean, yeah. did you did you get that sense as well? Absolutely. And one, I think you summed it up really nicely with the like the youthful optimism and the the elderly cynicism. But the one of the scenes that I thought about was when, um, or when I thought about that in the movie was when they're watching Vampira, um, kind of present the Dracula movie on Halloween or whatever, and all of Edward's comments are like, ah. She keeps interrupting the movie and like, blah, blah, blah. And like, what a great, like, Dracula. It's a classic and stuff. And Martin Landau's Bella Lugosi is like, yeah, like, she's so hot. What is he? Look at those she's jugs. A, <laughs> she's a honey is what he yeah. says. And then his whole thing about, like, if you want to make out with a lady, take her to see yeah. Dracula. Yeah. I was like, that is such a if you want to make out with a young lady take her to dracula i mean and he also talks about like frankenstein's not sexy like yeah yeah. what does he have to do yeah yeah and that i thought that was a good good moment Mm -hmm. to see exactly what you're talking about yeah um and then moving along here to the story of an artist now this is kind of like the the storyline thread that kind of gets put front and center with a lot of reviews and summaries Mm -hmm. and things like that I left it at the end because I felt like this is probably what we have the most to talk about. Because it is, mm-hmm. I would say like 50% of the movie is about this and the other 50% is devoted to those other two. Mm-hmm. Non-sequentially, like out of order and stuff like that. But this really is like at its root, this is the story of a guy who has a vision mm-hmm. and he he wants nothing more than a chance to, you know, emulate his heroes like Orson Welles and you know be a filmmaker he doesn't even necessarily want to be a famous filmmaker he just wants to make movies yeah and i love that he's got this infectious combination of like childlike enthusiasm Mm -hmm. peerless optimism ambition and drive all working together that just makes him just like really arresting to watch you know yeah yeah i think it's it is an interesting portrayal, and I wonder how much of that part is true because, you know, watching him direct is some of the funniest scenes, I think, in the movie. Yes. Um, and I wonder how true to life it was because one of the, like, I thought one of the funniest jokes that runs throughout is how he only does one take yeah. for everything. Yep. So there's some scene, and even his crew is like, do you, do you want to take that again? And he's like, no, 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 it's perfect. And he's like, well, they 
he literally ran into the scenery like he you know he, he ran into the door on his way out you want to do it again and he's like film makes it up about the little details <laughs> yeah it's a big picture and i think that one in particular he says he's like well that's a problem that he would have had to deal with every day like you don't think about it but mm-hmm. it's like well yeah but he still ran into a door that then like wobbled because it's clearly <laughs> painted into plywood but i yeah so i i do want like did he just do one take for everything from what I can true? tell, that was very much based on his actual uh, methods of operation. Wow. So, yeah. So, you know, his level of professionalism, questionable. But yeah. his level of, like, again, his enthusiasm and his, like, motivation, mm-hmm. you know, like, he wants to do this. Yeah. And he know, he's, he's got just so much confidence um, in his own ideas and in his work, and that inspires, that ends up inspiring the confidence in his collaborators. Yeah. You know, it's like, I don't know what the real Ed Wood was like to work with. I don't know if the people that worked with him were as willing to kind of deal with this kind of questionable professionalism, like mm-hmm. low, like frankly low skill um, filmmaker, but. In the film, at least as a character, it's like he inspires the people that he's around to go along with him just because he's like, I know exactly what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily know how to do it, but I know how I'm going to do it. And it's just like they get work done. Yeah. I mean, you can say he's a bad director, but I mean, a lot of the people that would call him a bad director, how many films have they made? True. You know? And I think, I mean, there's another version of the story where the guy who is just trying to get into the film business, he's trying to get his films made, he's trying to get his vision on screen, is a total tyrant. But Ed Wood is just the most accommodating director (laughs) I think you could ever have. Everything, he's just like, oh, yeah, no, that's great. Try it, try it. No, 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 that was a perfect take. Let's go. Like, we got it. Cut, print. It's, you know, it it may have been frustrating professionally, but, you know, emotionally, personally, I think anyone in the film industry was probably like, wow. This isn't the worst day of work I've ever had. Yeah, and I need to once again bring up the disaster artist because even though those the the filmmaker is portrayed in very similar ways, where it's like cheap production, fast one take wonder in their own mind, the people that work with them in the two films are radically different. Like mm-hmm. in Ed Wood, people just kind of go along with it with Ed. In the disaster artist. It's like people that are working with Tommy Wiseau are openly talking bad about him behind his back and like this guy doesn't know what he's doing. He's yeah. terrible. Like this is not this is not good. You know, they they confront him about their bad work conditions and things like that. Oh. But again, it's it, it's it's like two sides of the same coin separated by like 50 years. So it's mm-hmm. an interesting it's an interesting comparison. But again, I'll, I'll kind of leave that alone. Right. And how much of that is lens of the film and of how much course. of that is true life. But I, I would yes. have to hazard a guess that working with that, the tr- the, the more true to life Ed Wood story would probably be a lot like the disaster artist. Uh, However, I don't know that. I, right. I, I don't have any evidence for that other than just knowing what I would do if I was working with somebody who, <laughs> who was like that. But uh, I digress. Yeah. Um, and the way that Ed deals with setbacks is really interesting too. You know, it's like he runs out of money or he doesn't mm-hmm. have footage. It's like, one thing he doesn't seem very interested in is coverage. Like, it's like, you know, it, it's, I'll, I'll fill it in with, with stock footage of Buffalo or yeah. whatever. It's, uh, I was curious, it's like, you know, having, you know, working, worked in video production, we both worked on a number of different types of video sets and things mm-hmm. like that. The way he deals with setbacks in this film is enviable, I thought. Sure. I mean, he is, he is nothing but optimism. And I do think... You know, the likability of the character, a lot of that comes from, I feel like when he's dealing with other characters who are in it with him, a lot of the times his his point of view is kind of this, like, 
well, like, you shouldn't have to deal with it. Like, Bella Lugosi, mm-hmm. he, I feel like over and over again, we have these moments of him being like, someone like you out here in the middle of the night, like, when they have to shoot that octopus scene. Yeah. And it's a whole, it is like guerrilla filmmaking at its finest, oh, yeah. where they're stealing the octopus from, I guess, <laughs> the prop house and taking it out to some lake where they can shoot for a couple hours at a, night. A glorified puddle, really. Yeah, some kind of pond or something. I'm not totally clear where they were, but at the end of all of it, he's just like, oh, Bella, like, you shouldn't have to do this. A movie star like you, all this stuff. And it's just, it's, you know, so endearing to see someone, you know, it's that kind of ideal leader where it's, they're in the trenches with you mm-hmm. and they're they're dealing with all of the same stuff they're dealing, that you're dealing with, but they're apologizing to you for it. That's, yeah, he's, he's kind of the sweet. epitome of, like, the leader that operates in a philosophy of, like, I'll never ask you to do something that I won't do myself. Exactly, exactly. That's what I'm trying to get at. Um, and yeah, and I thought that made him so, like, the character of Ed is so likable throughout this film, and for mm-hmm. different reasons at different parts, and I think that that is one of the major things that makes him so endearing to the audience, is that you know that he is doing it out of passion. Mm-hmm. And so he might ask unreasonable things, like, you know, even the cast, or the crew that works with him throughout, from the from his staged production days... Mm-hmm. They're, you know, complaining about, like, I haven't slept and I'm tired and Ed's like, I haven't slept either, but let's just keep on going because we're making movies. There's actually, like, I just thought of this just now, but, like, Quentin Tarantino on his sets, like, every time they do a new take, every time they set up for a new take, he yells out to his kid. And I feel like this would be annoying in real life, but I do think it's kind of relevant to this. Mm. Every time they set up for a new take, Quentin yells out, why? And the whole cast and unison, or the cast and crew in unison says, because we love making movies. Oh, gosh. Which is cheesy as hell, but I think, honestly, it is kind of a mantra that you have to follow if you're in a business where it involves a lot of repetition and things right. like that. Right, and a lot of grueling work. Yeah. I, I did think one scene in the movie that kind of illustrated all this as well, too, was when um, the kind of... the One of the younger kids... I, he looked like a kid, but yeah. he was part of the, the crew that was with um, Ed Wood from his stage production mm-hmm. days in the opening of the film but he has to go find doubles for Bella Lugosi yes and he brings back like three dudes one's too tall one's too short and the other guy is like an Asian man and they're like yes he's just not gonna work but it'll be from his Fu Manchu days it's fine (laughs) which I was like that's okay all right right. yeah (laughs) and what is instead of so Ed is clearly like kind of like that's just not gonna work like this isn't good enough but whatever he says I wish I remembered the direct quote but he like He's like, you can do better work. Like, I believe in you. Yes. Like, it's it's a, like, this is not good enough. You need to go back and try again. Uh-huh. But it's in a very empowering. Yes. And, like, he gives the kids some affirmations and, like, sends them on his way. And it's just so sweet. He's like, and you can perform to yeah. a higher level than this or something. And it's so cute. And the way he does it, it doesn't even seem like he's just, uh, he doesn't even seem like he's just saying it to not, tick off his employee. Yeah. He, the way he delivers it makes you really believe it. Like, yeah. even though Ed, as we can tell, he's, like, a little bit annoyed and, and, and frustrated that these aren't these guys aren't going to work. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, the way he says that, because I, I feel like it's a very, like, modern tactic to kind of, whether you, whether you actually are earnest about it or not, to say, I know you're up to the challenge. 
I think that you can do better work than this. Yeah. You know, that's a very modern management technique. Sure. But the way Ed does it, it's like, you honestly believe it. It's like, I believe in you. Right. Like, my heart was warmed a little bit. I was like, yeah, like, who doesn't want to hear that from their boss? Like, yeah. that's the ideal way to handle it. But it was, sure. that was, I thought, a good example of, of what we're talking about. Yeah. And then just to kind of wrap up this idea of, like, the story of an artist's uh, reading of this film, it's like, the scene in particular that comes to mind is the one we mentioned earlier where he finally meets Orson Welles by happenstance at this bar. Excuse me, sir. Yes? Um, well, I'm a young filmmaker and a real big fan. I, I just wanted to meet you. My pleasure. I'm Orson Welles. And uh, I love that scene. Like, the whole interaction, that's... Uh, I don't know if you recognize him because he looked exactly like Orson Welles, that is Vincent D'Onofrio. I did not. I literally just saw it before we started recording when I was looking at the cast list. I didn't recognize him at all. And mostly, I think, you know, I do kind of picture him with that, like, kind of grizzled goatee beard. But no, I, yeah, I did yeah. not even recognize him. And, I, like, the makeup that was done in this film is so awesome. Like, it's Rick Baker Studios who does a lot of, like, who have done a lot of really iconic special effects makeup. But, oh, like... Okay. Like, you know, but for horror movies and science fiction movies. So, like, the fact that they were employed to make Martin Landau look exactly like Bela Lugosi and to make Vincent D'Onofrio look exactly like Orson Welles yeah. is mind-boggling to me. And um, you mentioned earlier, or did you mention... For some reason, I remember you mentioning this, if you mm. did or not. Hmm. Uh, that was not Vincent D'Onofrio's voice. That sounds exactly like Orson Welles. Oh! It's the damn money, man. You never know who's a windbag and who's got the goods. And then they all think they're directors. I had a note about this. I don't know if I mentioned it or not. I don't think I did, but I th that scene looked dubbed, and I was so confused. Other than Orson Welles, do you, can you think of anybody who may have sounded like that before? Oh. Like, any 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 character in fiction who may have sounded with that, that kind of voice? Character in fiction. I'll give you a hint. Obviously, it was not Vincent D'Onofrio. His Orson Welles impression right. does not sound like that. Because mm -hmm. it, 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 there's a little bit of, like, discrepancy between the lips moving and things like that. Yeah. You can tell it's not him actually talking, but it's so close that it's like, holy shit. This is, is, is this Orson Welles? Is the oh, ghost of Orson Welles? Uh -huh. Okay, so that voice is done by a guy named Maurice LaMarche, okay. who is a very well-known uh, voice actor for cartoons. Okay. Particularly a well-known cartoon from the 90s called Pinky and the Brain. Oh, that's funny. Reading history doesn't make things shiny. It edifies you and prepares you to confront the possibilities of destiny. I'm supposed to do a thriller at Universal, but they want Charlton Heston to play a Mexican. So Brain, Brain. Brain's voice was just Maurice LaMarche imitating Orson Welles, Take and he was known in Hollywood for years as doing a flawless Orson Welles impression. So they wow. cast him. He's uncredited, which is dumb. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, uh, Vincent D'Onofrio's face and Maurice LaMarche's voice create a an ungodly, uncanny, similar Orson Welles in this yeah. scene. Yeah. <sighs> Mr. Welles, is it all worth it? It is when it works. You know, the one film of mine where I had total control, Kane. The studio hated it, but they didn't get to touch a frame. Ed. Yes? Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams? Okay, and I did... I think the whole thing... I, I That's a hard thing to pull off, and it's interesting that they chose to do it, but 
it does give the whole scene kind of a dream sequency feel. Yeah. It's a little uncanny. The even, you know, the interaction between Ed Wood and Orson Welles is like, would this really happen? Would Orson Welles mm-hmm. have the time of day for some random guy at a bar who's wearing a dress and just took off his wig? Like, it's it's odd and it feels like I kind of questioned, like, is this really happening or is this <laughs> some kind of like fever dream something yeah but, sort of like him being in a position where he's asking himself what would orson wells do yeah possibly but that is interesting because yeah the impression was mm-hmm. flawless and i think that's important to bring up in terms of like who like the role that orson wells plays in this story as as i mentioned earlier kind of the yardstick that that ed measures himself against mm-hmm. he says early on is like orson wells was 26 when he made citizen kane and i'm right. 30 mm-hmm. and he, he kind of uses that as a as I don't want to say like a motivational thing, but as that's kind of how he's measuring his own level of success mm-hmm. and to meet this guy who's his hero, which it's true. Orson Welles on paper was a very similar type of figure in filmmaking that Ed Wood was in the sense that he was a writer, director, producer, he and actor, mm-hmm. and he had his own like crew of people that he worked with all the time. And he had the constant uphill struggle of doing like, you know, trying to do what he had in his own mind against the restrictions put in place by the studio system. Mm-hmm. So on paper, a lot of similarities. So right. I think that Ed truly did understand Orson Welles's struggles with making Touch of Evil was the uh, movie okay. that he's talking about where, uh-huh. where Charlton Heston played a Mexican. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, but yeah, I, I feel like that's kind of, he plays a small but important role in mm-hmm. this narrative. It's kind of like a framework for people that, you know, especially capital F film people who would be more familiar with Orson Welles than with Ed Wood. Sure. Um, anybody who watches this movie is probably more familiar with Orson Welles. Probably than so. <laughs> Very true. Um, anything else before we move on to kind of start wrapping things up here? No, I think I got most of my stuff out. I mean, it is like, there's a lot you can go into, especially if you have the film background, but overall, I think you hit it on the head at the beginning. It's it's just an enjoyable movie. I think everyone is pretty likable, even, you know, you, I guess you could see kind of Sarah Jessica Parker as a little bit antagonistic at some points, Mm and there are different... There's not a really a, a true antagonist. It's just no. you can kind of see everyone's point of view in this, and it is. It's. I don't want to use slice of life because we do use that a lot. <laughs> uh, but it correction, kind of you is. use that an awful lot. Oh, okay. <laughs> Go on. Um, I do think it is just. It's it's an interesting portrayal of, of an I, interesting a, character and a bunch of interesting characters. Yeah. I I had that in my notes of like I felt like this was just. Um, Tim Burton's love letter to a bunch of Hollywood weirdos, Mm -hmm. which actually that does bring me to one question I have outstanding, but at the very last, the end card Mm -hmm. says the end filmed in Hollywood, USA. What is that about? Do you know? That's just like an old fashioned thing. Like that just is like part of like the style. Um, I almost Mm -hmm. said like style appropriation. I'm not sure if that's really what I meant though of just like making this movie look like a movie that was made in the fifties. Gotcha. And because that was something that they would do just, Back in the day. The opening credits, actually, mm-hmm. with, like, the, the graveyard, that was the opening credits of Plan 9 from Outer Space. Oh, interesting. Um, was, like, going through the cemetery and all the cast's name were on headstones. Anyway. Okay. Um, but, yeah, that was, that's, that's a... Gotcha. Yeah. And actually, that gets us into one thing that we didn't talk about that I think is pretty huge is the aesthetic of this movie yeah. is very specific. It's yes. a black and white movie 
even though it's set in the 50s. So the movies Ed Wood is making are in color. No. No? Because no. they talk about the color of the dress at one point. I think he was just... I don't know what that was about. I assume just because, like, even in black and white, different colors photograph differently, obviously. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, that was a very meta joke that I thought was kind of throwaway. Uh. Unless, unless that was just, like, a very deep cut that that, that DP was actually colorblind in real life. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. Um, but go on. Wouldn't... But by the 1950s... Technicolor was a thing, right? Like colored movies. Okay, so it was a thing, but at the level that he was producing, would not exactly. So yeah, color movies definitely have been around for a long, lot longer than that, even. Right. But just the movies that he would have been shooting, definitely black and white. Mm -hmm. Now, interesting fact: apparently, Glenn or Glenda, uh, the movie that he, his first movie, I believe, Mm -hmm. um, was shot in black and white, released in black and white. Then in the '90s, it was colorized, and that is the only version that you can find anymore. Wow. That there are no black and white versions of that movie just around unless there's a film print that still exists somewhere. Interesting. Yeah. So, anyway, I thought that was an odd uh, thing. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah. Um, did you have any particular favorite scenes or moments from this movie? Um, favorite scenes or moments? I mean, the ones we talked about, I think the ones that really illustrate just what a good guy Ed Wood was are pretty sweet. I think I did think one scene that was interesting because it was really the only Tim Burton aesthetic that we saw. So that was kind of a, a fun little Easter egg almost was the spook house scene. I put that down too. Yeah. Exactly the same thing. It's just kind of funny because the whole rest of the movie, if you didn't know it was Tim Burton, I think you could get away never knowing it was Tim Burton. Yep. But that scene, knowing that it's Tim Burton, you're like, oh, yep. Yep, that's in Beetlejuice. That's those, like, the swirly eyes of the car and the snake that pops out. It's all very, like, yeah, you see. see I wrote in my notes, you just couldn't resist, could you? (laughs) You had to have that one scene. Which was great. I actually like that. Like, I I would love to go through a spook house that looked like that. That actually looked pretty fun. Yeah, and it was a sweet scene, too. I think that's where he tells Kathy about, like, that he likes to dress in women's Mm -hmm. clothing, and it's a big kind of moment. Like we said, a big coming out moment, but it is really him saying, like, this is who I am, and I like you, and I'd like to continue a relationship with and you, that, but... And that was also a great character moment in general, just because, like, it was him learning from the way he handled things before, and how that didn't really work out. Right. And so him choosing to be more upfront with somebody that he cares about, in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. One, saying, I'd like to see you again. Two, by the way, I like to wear women's clothes a lot. Right, so, and like, I'd like to be upfront with you yeah. from the get. So, so that's the good yeah. character development moment, for sure. Definitely. Um... I also I particularly loved, of course, the Orson Welles meeting. That's for sure my favorite scene. I, gotcha. just, I, I love it. That I almost feel like could function as like a short film on its own in a weird way oh, yeah. of just like crossdresser walks into a bar and sees Orson Welles. Like that's that's or like low end kind of no talent director meeting. Yes. his hero that is going to be one of the greats for. I guess all I was time. talking about more of a visual standpoint, but oh, yes, yeah. from a story standpoint, oh, both. Um, Johnny Depp in a dress walks into a bar, meets Orson Welles. Um, also, the uh, the scene where they're shooting Glenn or Glenda, where Ed is uh, acting in drag, and mm-hmm. like he's he's they're shooting it on the sidewalk, mm-hmm. and he's like checking out his reflection oh, yeah. in, in the window, and like he's like, all right, one, and they're like, you're gonna do another take. He's like, why? It was perfect. What? It was great. Move on. Move, move on. And, and they're like, like, we don't have permits. Cops, go! cops, go, go, go. That was great. I love That was hilarious. Yes. Yeah. I did think, so the last scene that they shot for Glenn or Glenda, where Sarah Jessica Parker's character is like, she just finds out that, um, about Ed Wood's character's secret and stuff. And she like takes off the sweater and hands it to him. I was like, yes. 
that's a pretty solid ending scene for that movie. Not bad, like, yeah. I, yeah, you know what? I, I could see it. You know, I, I feel like every, <laughs> the old adage, even a broken clock is right twice a day, like, yeah. that, may, that may have been Ed Wood's uh, uh, reality. I don't true, know. True, true. But, yeah, so those were kind of my tops. I Yeah, there was no bad scene in this. I did, we didn't talk a lot about Bill Murray, but I did think Bill Murray was really enjoyable to watch. Yes. It could have, I know, it's, it's hard, you know, straight actors playing gay characters is like, where does character caricature start? But my understanding of the actual um, the real Bunny Breckenridge, uh, from my understanding as well, because I researched him also, he was a very interesting cat. And so, yeah. if you are curious about uh, mm-hmm. just oddballs in in Hollywood history, he he just because he was just he was a rich guy oh. and had just a fascinating life. Okay, I need to look more into him. But he, Bill Murray's scenes were pretty. Great. I just like the way he played it, but mm-hmm. yeah. And from what I understand, also Bill Murray's performance was not exactly overselling gotcha. the actual person. That's so, the sense I got. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, before we wrap things up, any final thoughts? Um, would I mean, you recommend? Would you recommend this? That's film? what I was gonna say. I would say yes, especially if you're interested in in Hollywood history. I think it's. I think this is probably Edward's almost only legacy, maybe. I don't know if other... Other than the films that he made, yeah. Yeah, but I even those, I'm like, how much lasting power do they really have? Especially if this movie never happened. Like, well, who still cares about Edward's films? Probably nobody for the most part. Although the reason this film came about is just because it was written by two guys while they were at, I think, USC Film School. Mm-hmm. And they... And this is like, I guess, in the 80s. And that was the time where, like, home video releases and things like that were starting to make it, like, you know, film geeks who were mm-hmm. into, like, the underground film kind of thing knew who Ed Wood was because he was... Plan 9 from Out of Space had this reputation for being the worst movie ever made. Wow. There's, a whole, there's a whole Seinfeld... There's a classic Seinfeld episode called, like, The Chinese Restaurant, I think, uh-huh. where they're all going to see Plan 9 from Outer Space, but they get stuck waiting for a table at this Chinese restaurant. Oh. Plan 9 from Outer Space. One night only. The big screen. My hands are tied. <laughs> but that's the impetus for their, like, urgency in this movie, or in this episode, is that they're going to see Plan 9 from Outer Space. Wow. So, and that was... I think that episode came out before this movie was made. That was just Jerry Seinfeld writing an episode about we're going to see Plan 9. Uh-huh. And so I think that in the 80s in particular, Ed Wood was known in certain circles. People in the know were familiar mm-hmm. with him in the same way that The Room is known say. now. Yeah, okay. Interesting. Um, so anyway, yeah. Today in 2018, who knows? I mm-hmm. mean, I don't know anybody that's seen Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. I probably would never have known who Ed Wood was if this movie didn't exist. And yeah, definitely. This movie is, I think today, this movie, Ed Wood, is more famous than Plan 9. Mm. I, I'm very comfortable saying that. Sure, yeah. Um, I wonder if that'll be true for The Disaster Artist. Who Having not seen knows. the movie. Although, I mean, that, movie, them, that movie's been a cult classic for like 15 years. Like pretty much since it originally came out. Mm-hmm. Who knows? I mean, train this train can't go forever, but we'll see. Yeah. Um... But yeah, without further ado, what do we have on tap for next week? Well, I have one question for you. You have two options. Okay. Do you want to watch a movie about a young man's fantasy or a middle-aged woman's? I am going to go with middle-aged woman's fantasy because I feel like... Although, as curious as I am about the former... 
to like compare and contrast notes, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, let's let's go let's go with option number two. Let's go with the middle-aged woman's fantasy. Okay. After a disastrous divorce, a middle-aged writer takes to the European countryside and finds herself on an adventure she never imagined. Oh. Okay. Kay, have you seen Under the Tuscan Sun? I have not. One of many movies that I know by reputation only. Yes, and well. I've never had any interest in watching. <laughs> well, we'll see how you feel after you watch it. But, okay. um, yeah, I won't say too much more about it. But we shall. It's definitely not demographically targeted towards you. <laughs> but Very I'm interested to see uh, what you have to say. All right, great. Can't wait, I guess. <laughs> well, we'll see. All right, cool. Well, uh, with uh, with that, uh, until next time, my name is Kyle. I'm Kari. And uh, we'll see you next week. See ya.